The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, if anybody's feeling a little claustrophobic right now, it's a good thing to work with, you know, in practice, to just uh, notice that feeling. But uh, with some luck, we'll have a new building in the next, well, before we move in, it may be as many as six months, but who knows. But we have a purchase agreement on a building, so maybe someday, not too long, we'll have a little bit more breathing space. Oh, yeah, it's just down the street, seven blocks, the diner on the corner of 27th uh, Avenue and 26th Street. So we'll be giving the community more information. It just uh, fell into our laps in the last seven days or so with the help of many people here in this room. And uh, we'll be getting more information out to everybody in the coming weeks. So here we are with our body. And uh, last week I, I started to talk a little bit about uh, mindfulness in terms of the four foundations. This well-known talk the Buddha gave on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness. And this in many ways is one of the most famous, most useful of all of the talks the Buddha gave that has been remembered all these years and passed on and used as a set of instructions. So we'll dig into that talk, that discourse the Buddha gave over the next several weeks. And it's an interesting talk. Uh, and for those of you who were here last week, you heard some of this, but uh, people who weren't here. So the Buddha is basically saying that this is the direct path for suffering human beings who are interesting, interested in overcoming stress and lamentation and sorrow and confusion, all of the afflicted states, is to cultivate mindfulness of these four aspects of experience. Mindfulness of the body is the first foundation. Here the body includes all five of the physical senses, so it's not just the tactile, tactile experience, but it also includes hearing and seeing and smelling and tasting. So the five physical senses, that's one of the foundations. Mindfulness of the next three foundations are just different aspects of the mind. The aspect of the mind of pleasantness and unpleasantness. So in any time, in any moment of experience, the mind interprets based on our conditioning that experience as pleasant, unpleasant, or not sure whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, right? So some of you you know, hear my voice, and to you it's just sweet. <laughs> and other people hear my voice and says, boy, his voice is nasal, or something like that. Um, so whatever it is, you can't help it, but have a particular pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience when you hear my voice, or hear the sound of a cardinal, or the sound of traffic. It's, the mind just interprets it a particular way based on our conditioning. So that's the second foundation, is to notice the pleasantness or the unpleasantness or the in-between of any experience that is being known in the moment. Is it being perceived as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? 
And then the third is to notice the coloring of the mind. So what is what is present there in the mind? Is greed present? Or the absence of greed, a quality of generosity or simplicity? Is aversion present? Or loving kindness? And then the fourth foundation, uh, uh, usually it's translated as mindfulness of mind objects, aware of mind objects. And I think a useful definition of this fourth foundation is we're actually observing the skillfulness or unskillfulness of what's present in the mind. Or even more uh, specifically, we're noticing how what is present in the mind, how it's uh, influencing, influencing what's happening next. So for example, if there's irritation in the mind, noticing the irritation would be the third foundation, like noticing the content of the mind. That's the third foundation. But noticing how irritation leads to whatever irritation leads to, that's the fourth foundation. Like how irritation leads to me acting out, to notice that. Or to notice how irritation leads to me shutting down, numbing out, closing down. That would be the fourth foundation. So we'll be spending a week or two talking about this first foundation, mindfulness of the body. But for each of these four foundations, so in other words, no matter what we're paying attention to, the Buddha talks about three stages or or three aspects of this mindfulness training that we do. And it's linear in this sense. So the most important thing in the beginning of being mindful of anything, so now we're talking about the body, we're going to focus on the body for a couple of weeks, so let's use that as an example. So being mindful of the breath, because for most of us here in the room, the sensations of the breath is a, a very useful anchor in our meditation practice, right? So maybe you feel it here at your nostrils or upper lip, or maybe you feel the breath and it's the movement of the abdomen, expanding and contracting. So the first part of our practice is what we could say is just this quality of, of meeting the experience as an experience. So in, in moving from our, our story or our concept or our idea of the breath to the actual specific characteristics of the breath. And you know, when we start paying attention to the breath, it's not really a breath at that point. It's not marked breathing when we feel the breath. Because we have to find the breath as an actual experience, so it becomes a verb instead of a noun. The breath is a noun, which means it's a concept. And it involves this idea of Mark, who has a body, and he needs to breathe to stay alive. He's got lungs that do this, you know, expand and contract. And when they do that, it causes some sensations here or here. So that... That may be a useful story at times, or a useful concept at times, but in terms of mindfulness practice, it's in the way of actually feeling the breath as sensation. So feeling touching, when you're really there with the touching sensation, for example, at the nostrils, there's no space, there's no room for a concept of a breath. It's extra, completely extra. Or even the concept of the nostril or moving air, even that idea, even that language is extra. You don't need those words, those concepts, in order to feel the coolness as the air comes in or the touching as the air comes in. 
and the warmth or touching as the air goes out, or the feeling of movement as the belly expands and the feeling experience of movement as the belly contracts. We don't need language. We don't need concepts. We just, actually what we need is a certain kind of effort, which is the effort not to be confused by our thinking, our concepts. It's going to keep going. We're going to keep thinking about our breath when we're breathing. But, but what we can do is we can train in not being confused by the thinking, and that allows us not to fixate on the thoughts, but to go right to the actual sensations. So then there's the mind that knows knowing sensation, the sensation of touching, the sensation of movement, as an actual moment-to-moment experience. So here are the instructions the Buddha gives and for each of these foundations, in each part of the foundation, he gives the same set of instruction. So during this talk, this discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta, he probably repeats a set of instructions, oh, probably, because in each of the four foundations there are specific meditations to do. So probably he repeats this 12 times or so in this talk. Well, he'll say that your job is to contemplate, like in terms of the body, contemplate the body as a body, right? Not, not contemplating the body as, oh, this is my breath, or this is my body, or this is my touching sensation, which is part of a story or a concept, but actually coming right to that experience of contact or pressure or whatever we're paying attention to. internally and externally, internally and externally. So here he's talking about the need for ardency, that we have to remain focused, we have to keep track, we have to be wholehearted, like I mentioned, this kind of effort that is not being confused by our interpretations, our thoughts, alert, mindful. So, you know, part of the, the definition of mindfulness is a not forgetting or a recollection. I think I talked a little bit about this last week. So we have to not forget, because if we forget, even in just one moment, immediately we'll go back to the interpretation. We'll have an image and we'll fixate on, okay, I'm here watching my breath. But that thought is not mindfulness of the breath. That's just a thought. So if you want to be mindful in that moment, it's noticing, oh, that's just a thought. And then we drop again into the body. And if we're feeling the breath at the nostrils, then we drop right into that experience of touching. What is the experience of touching without the idea of the breath confusing that experience or distorting that experience? There may be that thought of the breath, but we just let it happen in the background. And the mind that knows the quality of attention is meeting the actual experience of touching. So we sometimes refer to this first part of our mindfulness training as bare attention, or sometimes uh, Tanishro Bhikkhu uses the word phenomenological. So we're trying to see the breath as a natural phenomena, as a, a natural, visceral happening in the moment. And that takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of this special kind of effort. 
It's not a gross kind of effort. Too, if our effort's too gross, it actually doesn't work. We'll just get tight. So the effort's very specific. It's an effort in not forgetting what we're doing, that we're actually trying to find a way back to the visceral or the physical experience of breathing, wherever it is that we're noticing it in the body. Not to be confused by our thoughts. Then once we can observe at that level, once we have some momentum, then there's a second part of practice where the Buddha talks about um, you know, comprehending or contemplating the arising factors, contemplating the vanishing factors. So what he means here is, and he says this for everything, feelings, mind states, mind objects, we want to contemplate the arising and the passing of, of these moments of experience. So here, uh, instead of just noticing the touching, we're noticing how the experience of touching arises and passes. In other words, we're paying attention not so much to the experience of touching, but we're focusing instead, we're getting interested instead on the very truth of it being in flux. That the touching experience isn't a fixed experience, but it's constantly in flux. In other words, it's a process. We can't actually find touching. Now, initially we think, oh yeah, I got it, this is touching. You know, I'm not in concepts touching. Touching is like this. So I'm talking about the nostrils here. For you, if you're down here in your belly watching your breath, it would be movement. Feeling the movement of the abdominal wall. You know, and the movement of the abdominal wall as it contracts. Um, so whatever the physical experience you're paying attention to, once you start paying attention, then the Buddha suggests that we start to notice that that physical experience is in flux. It isn't static. And to notice the fluxness of it, notice the changing nature of it, get interested in that. What is it to know change as change? So we're actually observing the changing as opposed to what it... We're not so concerned about what's changing, like whether it's the changing of movement or the changing of touching or the changing watching a thought come and go or a mood come and go. So here, we're specifically interested in the changingness of phenomena. It's really... This is a very important part of practice because... The more we are able to observe at the subtle level, it undermines any sense of ground. You know, it's like, it's how we train in being more and more at ease in a world without any ground, in a world of flux, a world of change. Now, we normally don't think of our world, I mean, we know conceptually the world's changing. You know, we know that it's not yesterday, it's today and soon it will be tomorrow, you know, and I'm not 13 anymore, now I'm 48. So we know these things about ourselves, but we don't really know that. In any moment, we think actually that things are quite stable and solid. But it's not. It's a flow. And as a flow, there's no ground. And we can experience this directly. 
to experience this directly, we have to completely let go. This is the fruit of seeing changing, this changing nature. So first the Buddha encourages us to see through our conceptual universe, our concepts, our ideas, into the experience not colored, not distorted by concept. And this is true whether we're watching the breath in the body, or a sound, hearing a sound, smelling a smell, or even noticing a mood or mind state. We want to see it as a natural phenomena, and then we want to notice the changing nature. And then the third part of mindfulness is what arises from that. Because the more we see the changing nature, quite naturally, intuitively, we start to learn something about how to relate to life, to all things. And just, you probably know what it is. If we start observing in this careful, subtle way, and we see how everything is in flux, what do we start to learn intuitively? We learn, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. It's like we have one instruction, you know, we come into life, there's only one instruction we need. Let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Or we could say, let be, let be, let be, let be, let be. So that just starts, that wisdom of letting things be, it just starts to intuitively arise. That's the fruit of seeing change, how everything's in flux. We just get intuitively the way to be is not clinging to anything whatsoever. And so this sets up the third part of mindfulness, which is this more direct realization where we understand that we don't even need to do, we don't even need to try to be skillful in any moment, that the, uh, in, a, in a way the essence of being a skillful human being is just not non-clinging, non-clinging. Everything else happens on its own. And I, I tried to suggest this just a little bit at the very end of the sit when I said to notice how the awareness itself is effortless. You don't, nobody in this room is making any particular effort to hear me right now. You'll hear this voice, the sound, as long as the mind isn't distracted. But if we, if uh, out of habit, something arises that distorts the mind, that distracts the mind, then it's possible not to hear. But a mind that is undistracted will hear, will feel the body, will smell smells, will notice thoughts as thoughts. So the knowing takes no particular effort. So in this third stage of mindfulness, we're realizing, intuitively realizing, that practice, the practice of being a healthy, balanced, productive human being, free human being, is the practice of letting go, or letting things be, or not clinging, non-clinging. That's it. But that's not, we can't go right there. Because if we think, oh, I, I, Mark, if only I can practice not clinging, then I'll be a free human being, because I heard that last night at Common Ground. So now, you know, you spend your week practicing non-clinging directly. So the ego, Mark, is practicing non-clinging in order to be free, 
and it messes up the whole thing. So the, the experience, the realization of non-clinging is more of a, it, it's a, a, a realization that we have when we're observing how everything's in flux, how the whole, our whole experience, externally, internally, it's all in movement. And it's all moving lawfully and naturally. And the intuitive, appropriate response to that is to let go is to not cling to the natural unfolding of things. And surprisingly, everything starts to work better. Our natural wisdom starts to arise more clearly and effortlessly in the different situations that we find ourselves in in life. And we just naturally start responding better. Not perfectly, but better than if we're trying to do it right. And I'm sure everybody has had moments where you've seen that kind of natural effortless wisdom where you're just responding more uh, carefully or, or more skillfully in different moments and not because of any particular effort but because of something that's not there something not being in the way allows for the skillfulness the creativity in a, in a given moment so let's try to keep these three things in mind as we work through the four foundations over the next month or so because it really, what it demonstrates is how awareness practice or mindfulness practice naturally evolves from relatively gross to relatively subtle to the most subtle. And we have to, we have to moment after moment, start always here and just with bare attention, like just learning how, learning that it's possible not to be distracted or disturbed by our interpretations our concepts, our stories. They're going to be there. There's no way that I've found that we can immediately shut off our thinking mind, our concepts. They're just there. But we can definitely learn with practice not to be distracted by them, not to take them so seriously, so personally. They're just thoughts, just concepts, just interpretations. And we can, and it's like I mentioned, I think last week. You know, if you look out the back door screen, the screen door, you can be quite confused by that screen door. If you fixate on the screen, you won't see anything beyond the screen. All you see is the screen. If you haven't done this, try it. And then if you just practice relaxing, you can see right through. And it's the same with our concepts. We're in a very, very deep rut of fixating on our concepts. We trust our concepts, our th thoughts, our stories. And so we fixate on them. We're identified with them. We're, we're, uh, we feel naked without them, without our interpretations. When you go home tonight, if you have someone, let's say a partner there or a good friend that you live with or a pet, try when you walk in the door to open to that experience without concepts without being distorted or distracted by your concepts or your interpretation of that person or that pet. And it's like wild. I mean, literally wild in the sense of wilderness. It's like you're in an unknown place because our concepts create a sense of familiarity. Like we know it because we've already defined it. Our concepts are defined. In this world of flux, concepts give us a semblance of permanency, of ground. And so, unfortunately, we're addicted to this 
this illusory ground. And that's why this practice is so hard. Because to come to the more natural state, we have to let go of what's false. And unfortunately, what's false is this sense of ground or security. There's no security as a human being. There just isn't. Some of you know John Allegre, uh, who was a regular participant here on Wednesday nights and other many of the other programs at Common Ground. Well, a couple of weeks ago, he fell over the railing and hit his head and died. You know, he's just 58, 58 years old. You know, and that's just a more dramatic example of impermanence. But things are changing all the time. We just project some semblance of solidity and permanency to our experience. But it's constantly changing. You know, if I look at myself, I now I'm the way that I am. And I think about myself 20 years ago, you know, that was different. But where did I become this and no longer that? Because I always felt like I was still me all the way along. But actually, that me was constantly in flux, whatever we, you know, refer to, that sort of set of patterns or set of habits, mental habits, physical characteristics, that was constantly in flux, changing. What do they say? I think scientists, I don't know how they know this, but they say that every seven years you completely replaced all your cells, right? No cells last longer than seven years or something like that. I don't know if that's really true, but I've heard that enough. I mean, I guess if you repeat something enough, it's true. But it might be true. I mean, we have that idea or that that sort of scientific sense that the body is continually reinventing itself, recreating itself. Certainly it's true in nature when you look at the plants, look at the seasons. And the great thing is we have this anchor for our practice, which is our body, you know, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, and physical sensations. It's such a great gift to have this relatively gross, dense experience to tune into. To learn these these very subtle, profound truths in something that's so available. We don't have to pay you know, for this experience, it's always available. We don't need to go to a meditation center to practice. We're walking all the time, moving all the time with this, these five things arising and passing, sounds, smells, tastes, sights, and sensation. This is from a short article that Gil Fransdale wrote a while back in the late 90s called The Body at the Center, Mindfulness of the Body and the Practice Instructions of the Buddha. Gil is a well-known teacher on the West Coast and runs a center in South Bay, South San Francisco Bay. He's also a Buddhist scholar. Besides being a meditation teacher, he's got his PhD in Buddhist studies. So in this article, he, he says, I did not begin my Buddhist practice with any intention to discover my body. I had no idea that the body had any importance to the path of practice. 
except as something to place on a meditation cushion. Even during my early months and years in meditation, when my body painfully revealed patterns of tension and psychological holding, I was convinced that these physical difficulties were nuisances to be ignored or transcended rather than the actual substance and unfolding of practice. Slowly over the years, as my body began to come alive, I was, and still am, repeatedly surprised by how much awareness, love, and compassion are found in and through the body. I have learned that mindfulness of the body is the foundation of mindfulness practice and one of the best friends we have for integrating the practice into daily life. The Buddha himself said, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness, to clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. Elsewhere, the Buddha said, if the body is not cultivated, <coughs> the mind is not, cannot be cultivated. If the body is cultivated, then the mind can be cultivated. A little bit later in this article, Gil talks about studying with a well-known Thai master, um, Ajahn Buddhadasa in su- southern Thailand, when he was practicing in Asia. And evidently one of the instructions Ajahn Buddhadasa gave to him was, do not do anything that takes you out of your body. And I'll tell you, if you want one instruction, especially daily life practice, this is a great instruction. So you can remember this. It's easy for all of us to remember. Don't do anything that takes you out of your experience of your body. In other words, no matter what you're doing, raising kids, solving problems at work, driving in traffic, no matter what we're doing, we can cultivate mindfulness of the body, of these five physical senses. It really supports whatever else we're doing. One of the little exercises we do all the time in the Buddhist studies class on Monday nights is we break into small groups and people sort of respond to some reflection, some Dharma question in the small group. And so one person will talk and the other two people will listen. And the instruction when we're listening is to is to be paying attention to, to the body. So 80%, this is just sort of a made-up percentage, but let's say 80% of the mind or the energy of the mind is devoted to paying attention to the body and 20% to listening to what the person's saying. And what we find, surprisingly maybe, is that we're much more intimate, present for that person if we're grounded in the experience of the body. So try that. I really recommend this. When you're interacting with somebody, stay deeply present to the body. And you may not like it because you might notice all kinds of tension, especially when you're interacting with another person. But boy, it's a lot more useful to know that we're tightening up than to be unconscious of it. Because if we're unconscious of the tension, we're just going to act it out in our conversation, what we say and what we don't say and how we say what we say. It's even easier, of course, to do this when you're driving or when you're brushing your teeth or when you're washing dishes or cooking 
or watching TV. Try that when you're watching TV or a movie. Stay present to the body. See, it's, it's disconcerting because we want to get lost in these experiences. Stay present to what's being seen, to what's being heard. It's a completely different, radically different experience in life if we stay grounded in the experience of the body. So let's make that our homework for the next couple of weeks, okay? Where we're, because you know, right now you can just reflect, you know it's safe. It's like, well, this seems pretty safe. So one of the things we're going to do, if, we, if you make this commitment, is you're going to notice how much resistance there is to doing this. So just don't be surprised by resistance. Do it anyway, as best you can. And to the degree you're not doing it, just forgive yourself and start over again. So for the next few weeks, and hopefully for the next 80 years or whatever, however many years we have left, or however many lifetimes we have left, you know, we make this commitment to taking advantage of this foundation of mindfulness, that we can be actually grounded in the experience of these five physical senses. It's so much of our life. It's like our, the sum total of our experience as a human being is nothing more than these five physical experiences, moment by moment, and our thoughts arising in the mind. That's it. Hearing, smelling, tasting, seeing, physical sensations, and thoughts. And the only reason our life feels much more substantial than that is because we are in the habit of fixating or identifying with these thoughts in such a way that we lose touch with the ephemeral changing nature of these six things. And in a way, temporarily, and it's only temporary, temporarily we are lost in our dream. Just like in the middle of the night when we're dreaming, we are temporarily consumed in that dream. And that dream at that time is real, right? And we don't notice it, but it's taking a lot of mental tension to maintain that dream. And we don't know it now, but it's also all those moments of our life where we're identified and, and distracted and caught up in our thinking that takes a lot of tension too and it's called dukkha or suffering so to move from being lost in thoughts to alive to these six things is the path of freedom and happiness and wisdom and compassion you'll notice you'll start to notice as Gil suggests you know when he says how surprised he was um, by how much awareness, love, and compassion are found in and through the body, you'll notice this thing. Learning to be more grounded, more intimate with the five physical senses. So seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. Feeling the sensations is just feeling the sensations. You'll notice a natural, organic tenderness. You won't be trying to be compassionate or tender, you'll just start noticing it. There's nothing more conducive to compassion than experiencing the changing nature of our, ex our existence. And there's nothing more conducive to arrogance 
the arrogance that, that says we're better than everybody else and the arrogance that says we're worse than everybody else. Those are both arrogant. Right? There's nothing more conducive to arrogance than, seeing th- than not seeing the changing nature of things. That's what allows us to become arrogant and rigid and tight, either in thinking we're no good or thinking we're better. So just be on the lookout for that tenderness that arises as we do this very simple practice of coming back into the experience of the body. And especially the tactile sensations or will be probably for most of you easier. But don't forget the other four physical senses. But for as the basic anchor, come into the tactile experience of the body. Pressure, weight, heat, coolness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. Right? So these are the characteristics of tactile experience, right? And we just wake up. We take him as a great friend. And it doesn't prevent us from being a good employee or a good citizen or a good partner or a good parent. It doesn't get in the way. You'll find that. You might, at first it might feel a little awkward. Now i got to really, you know, pay attention. But this always fits. Like when you're driving. Oh, seeing, seeing, hearing. Like getting the whole body involved in the experience of driving skillfully. Really taking care of yourself and all beings on the highway as you're driving. Or when you're interacting with somebody, really taking care of yourself and that other person by really being grounded there, hearing, seeing, feeling. And and tactically being in the body is so useful for getting to know our emotions because you know emotions are these waves of energy that have both sort of mental components but also physical they, they, they arise both as sort of a mentality and physicality and a, you know mentality is much more subtle and seductive and harder to see it's easier to get to know emotions as as that physical movement of energy hardness heat pressure you know when you think about falling in love and well, we can actually feel that viscerally, or when we're angry, or when we're frightened or anxious. You know, we can feel it. So this will really help our our education, you know, emotional education. So that's our homework this week, and I want to save some time because probably people in this room have some experiences that they might like to share from your own meditation practice and your own daily life practice, both in terms of these three stages of mindfulness that I talked about earlier in the talk, from the bare attention to noticing the changingness of experience to that effortless, to the inherent freedom in experience, the non-clinging. That or any comments or questions you have about mindfulness of the body, anything that comes to mind that seems relevant.
I was coming to a nice breathing, and when you said, don't control it, I stopped controlling it, and I just let it go, and I just felt this, I don't know, it was just like that numbness, complete numbness, and it just overcame me, it was so powerful, and it was weird because I just felt like this, this tug, like this force of like, I'm like going that way, and I wanted to like check it and wake up and see if I was like tilting at all, and I wasn't, but it was just such an intense mm-hmm. feeling, the only thing that really grabbed me out of it was the bells. Yeah. So one thing that happens when the mind becomes more settled, the concentration deepens, is that we start opening to the body in a more subtle way. And so it's like uh, this uh, unfinished business. And so the experience of subtle sensation in the body won't necessarily look or feel like we normally expect the body to feel. It won't have the same shape, form. That all can fall away. And uh, it's much more, uh, well, basically the instruction is just to trust it because it is what it is and not to try to go back to what you expect the body to feel like or what you remember the body feeling like. You really trust that what you might call a distortion or a, a sort of an unusual uh, experience of the body. That's what I try to do is really put a lot of trust into it. Yeah. Everything's okay and yeah, 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 yeah. the feeling of it. Yeah, good. Yeah, and it can fe- sometimes it can be quite strange. Uh, sometimes the body feels like it's levitating, it's so light. Sometimes it feels like it weighs a thousand tons. Sometimes it, the body feels huge. Sometimes it feels really small. Sometimes, well, it's just it, basically anything is possible. And the instruction is always the same, which is, to, can this be okay? To just trust the unfolding of the body, the experience of the body. Not, hold, not expecting it to stay the same. It won't stay the same. That's the one thing for sure. As the, as the practice deepens, the experience unfolds. And we go through stages where it's very pleasant and stages where it's very unpleasant. And don't ever assume that if it's really unpleasant that it means your practice is bad. Because it doesn't mean that. It just means it's unpleasant. And don't assume if it's really pleasant that your practice is good. Because it only means that it's pleasant. It's just what it is. And if you get hung up in judging, it will really get in the way of things progressing, just unfolding as they need to unfold. Chris, did you have a thought? Yeah, I was noticing as you were talking that um, one of the reasons that I love my work is that it helps bring me into my body. Yeah, a little bit louder so they can hear you back. I was noticing that... um, one of the reasons that I love my work, it's very physical, um, is that it brings me into my body and so I'm aware of, you know, lifting and moving and um, heat and cold and, and things. Um, but I've been struggling a lot with mosquitoes. And I've been trying to practice with it. And I've noticed, you know, that it can be really, really super overwhelming and then it changes. But I still have this underlying feeling of, I'm going to die, you know, or, you know, like, some sort of self-preservation thing that comes up. And, um, so I have, like, the last part, I can't hear. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just 
struggling with the feeling that it's so overwhelming that I might die or get killed by all these mosquitoes. Uh, and, um, but noticing some changes in it, but this, this sort of self-preservation thing that's coming up underneath it. So I'm not getting to the third. Right. But, but the, even that first, there's so much freedom, even in that first stage, which is to feel the yuckiness, just as the yuckiness that you feel there. Because just to go, see, in order to get to that first phase where you're surrounded by mosquitoes, so uh, Chris is a farmer, and uh, so you're out there, you know, as you can imagine Chris out there and being eaten alive by the mosquitoes and, you know, you, you know, we all know this experience, how we have the very strong thought that this is not okay. Or, and maybe we have a lot of conflicting thoughts, like this is not okay, and I'm bad if I kill them, because I'm a Buddhist, or I'm, you know, I'm devoted to not harming or something. And so we can have a lot of things going on in the mind, and it can create a real hell. I mean, not only does it hurt to be bit by mosquitoes, but it hurts to not to want to kill them and it just it can create a big big mess in the mind so we first of course we want to notice there's a big mess in the mind we want to feel that mental conflict and confusion and then we can come into the experience of the body and this is very radical to come into the experience of the body because we have to die to all those thoughts in order to not be confused by those thoughts that you have so Chris even said, you know, this fear that I'm going to be eaten alive or something like that. So how do you actually get to the uh, to the present moment experience of the body? You have to not be confused by that thought. And that's a pretty intense, seductive thought. Pretty primitive thought. You know, that sur- survival thought. If I don't do something, I'm going to be killed. So how do you move through it? Well, the only thing, the only way to move through it is with wisdom. It's like uh, we have a very strong assumption, which is that life should be good or pleasant or life should make sense. And one of the nice things about being around a lot of insects, and I'm sure some of you, I probably most of the people in this room have had experiences around a lot of insects. I was once up in Alaska for a couple months. And there are lots of mosquitoes there. I mean, we had to really work at eating without getting mosquitoes in our mouth. You know, we'd lift the, you know, put the food in and put the net down, and it was you'd still end up getting mosquitoes inside your net and sometimes in your mouth. Um, and but one of the things that comes when we're really oppressed by the unpleasantness of life is that we we get this this basic truth that life hasn't been created to make for a pleasant human experience. And sometimes our experience is pleasant and sometimes it's not. But what happens, especially when we've had a relatively comfortable existence, we start developing this assumption that life is supposed to be pleasant. That life was made by somebody for us to be comfortable. But we, when all we have to do is watch the news to realize that that's not true. But isn't it amazing how surprised we are when we get sick? Like I've been 
sort of struggling with just a, a kind of a cold the last few days. And uh, it's just amazing how, if I'm not careful, I'll be surprised. Like, oh, it's not supposed to be this way. And I don't get sick very often, so it's like, oh, yeah, this is just what happens to bodies sometimes. But how do we, uh, you know, can we actually let that in? Can that be okay to live in a world filled with mosquitoes as if they were never to go away or were never going to solve the problem like how to be outdoors without being oppressed by them? Because if it isn't the mosquitoes, it will be something like getting older. Wynn and I, especially Wynn, spent most of the last six weeks with her dad, an 86-year-old man who died uh, about 10 days ago or so. And uh, the last several weeks, you know, he was just struggling to breathe. And, you know, and just suffering. And there was nothing the family could do for him. And it's just so powerful to be around somebody at that stage. I hadn't really had that opportunity to be around an old person dying in a slow way that old people sometimes die. And just to be around that uh, unavoidable suffering and to kind of really let it in. And my mom has Alzheimer's now and it's it's getting pretty severe where she can't really talk much anymore, uh, get more than a word out here and there. And even that, often the words, most often the words don't really connect with what the conversation is. And just to, just to see that struggle and to see the struggle for my dad of letting go, this just to be present in those situations where we really get, oh yeah, this is actually how it is. And you know, the biggest place for me is being really devoted to sitting practice for, I don't know, 24 years now, sitting almost every day and for many, many, many years sitting many hours a day and just having so much physical discomfort over those years. It's like really getting that the body isn't supposed to deliver, you know, one pleasant sensation after another. That's just not the way it is. And there what happens slowly is this uh, this breaking down of that assumption. And so the problem isn't the unpleasantness of the mosquitoes. The real problem is we expect it to be different than this. That's what creates the desperation that we feel in those times when we're oppressed by mosquitoes or whatever we're oppressed by. It's not so much that the biting and the stinging is so bad. It's that we think it's wrong that it's happening, that it shouldn't be this way, that they're bad. And that can absolutely change if we practice being more and more open to life because unpleasantness is just naturally part of life. And so we'll learn that. And the pleasantness of life, which is also natural, is ephemeral. So even when it is pleasant, we're noticing that it's already falling away. It's not here to stay. Like when we have a nice day, you know, those end of summer days. And just to know that, yeah, it's nice, but it's not, it's not anything to grab a hold of because it won't be long before, you know, it's cold and 40 degrees. And then, and then you know, what comes next? <laughs> mm -hmm.
other thoughts people have? Mm-hmm. Jimmy. Um, I cut my thumb at work a couple of days ago in a situation that's kind of hard to describe, so I'm not going to, but it was, I knew going into it that I had to be kind of careful because something could happen, right? And um, I ended up getting cut, and the very first thing that happened almost instantaneously was I said in my head, I didn't want to do that. That's exactly what I didn't want to do. Instead of, like, I didn't necessarily feel any pain, but it was all, like, mental. Mm-hmm. I don't want this. You know, like, my fingers cut, I don't want to cut. And I didn't even necessarily know that I was doing that until after the fact, when I was thinking about it. It's just, you know, just Harry's home out how ingrained it is and how fast your mind can just kind of attach to a, you, you know, you, you get attached to the idea of you in a particular situation or how you expect it to be. Yeah, and I think that's why the Buddha and the other teachers, they make such a strong push. I mean, it almost sounds aggressive about how hard they emphasize the need to be mindful. Because they ha- we have to overcome that that thing that you described, Jimmy, which is that we go right to thinking and we'll miss our opportunity. So we have to be so committed to actually being in the body so that we're not going to be distracted by that mental impulse to judge it or to react mentally. And, uh, and then, of course, once we're able to do that, then the effort becomes more subtle. But the initial effort to remember this possibility needs to be kind of loud and blaring. Because otherwise we'll just forget. We'll just spend the day in the mind thinking and interpreting, living in our interpretations, our reactions. And we'll just sort of miss this opportunity. But it have to be quick. It's 9 o'clock. Well, it depends what it, what the attention to, let's say, like I've been feeling heavy and sleepy the last four days or so, and my glands are swollen and my my uh, tonsils are achy or painful, and uh, you know, if I'm paying attention to that and just reacting with negativity, then it may not be so skillful. But if I'm paying attention to it. Is, is the cause for me not to um, distract myself, not to like be aversive. It actually allows me to relax with it. Then I think it's quite wholesome. So I think in general it's good, but if you find yourself reacting to the pain, then you might need to skillfully bring your attention somewhere else just to give yourself a break. Because sometimes the pain, we get withered if we're paying attention to something that's unpleasant for too long. You know, and so Chris might be able to handle just like being there with the buzzing, the sound of the mosquitoes and the stinging and uh, whatever else is going on with that experience. But at, and, and to be vividly there without sort of creating uh, anxiety, reacting with anxiety. But after a while, that that sort of wholehearted presence 
might just be too demanding and the mind starts to get exhausted. It just doesn't have that enough momentum in the mindfulness. And so she might need to take a break, you know, and run into the car or <laughs> run back to the house. Jump in the lake, yeah. So let's leave it here and we'll check in. We'll, for at least another week or so, we'll, we'll be working with the body. But let's take a few seconds and let go of the words and take a couple breaths together. Feel the body sitting here. And we can remember our aspiration for our practice that it's not only our own suffering and stress, fear and greed that we care about, but we realize that everybody in this room and everybody we know also is burdened by this, these different patterns of suffering. So we can aspire to practice, to live our life in a way that supports the happiness and the liberation of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.